Dear Father in heaven, creator God, you have made all things, including us. And what a privilege, Lord, that you've also given to us your holy word, that we have the opportunity now to study, to discuss, to learn, to grow deeper in our relationship with you. And we pray, Lord, that you'd send your spirit to hover over us, to be present among us now, to open up our hearts and minds to receive your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so to begin with, a question that already kind of teased in the sermon today, but where does Jesus first show up in the Bible? Where does Jesus first show up in the Bible? Genesis. Genesis. Obviously, the answer is Genesis. But it's significant to say that Jesus is present. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, is present already in the Scriptures. He doesn't show up for the first time in Matthew chapter 1, the first chapter of the New Testament. He is there present all throughout the Bible, albeit in a a hidden way, not in a fully revealed kind of way, but he is there all throughout the scriptures. Now, again, as I alluded to in the sermon in Genesis chapter 1, and this is a long line of Christian interpretation, you have the word of God there as God creates, let there be light. Okay, that here is the word of God as John Of course, echoing Genesis begins his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But all throughout the Old Testament, we see Jesus appearing, being present in, if you will, kind of pre-incarnate sorts of ways. And this is, he himself testifies to this in the Gospels. When he talks about, um, for instance, in Luke 24, with the... uh, Disciples walking on the way to Emmaus on the day of his resurrection, right? And they don't recognize him. They don't realize that it's him. And then he opens their mind to understand the scriptures. And he points, them to, points to them all the ways in all the Old Testament, the books of Moses, the prophets, the writings that were pointing to him. I said to the confirmation kids, I mentioned in my inklings this week, the whole point of the Bible is to point to Jesus. Old Testament, New Testament, all of it finds its coherence in him. It's important to mention that because as we read the Old Testament, there's, um, I think, some faulty or insufficient, put it that way, some insufficient ways of reading the Old Testament. One is just to say, oh, it's not relevant to us at all. It doesn't have anything to do with us anymore. And in our heresy study, we kind of touched on this when we talked about the heresy of Marcionism, where Marcion just straight up said, it's a different God. We don't want to have anything to do with that. And so we're just going to cut it out. Now, there's not as many explicit Marcionites nowadays, but there's plenty of Christians, and perhaps some of you have felt like that's, that's you sometimes, that essentially become functional Marcionites. Hmm. It's the name of my band in high school, actually. Um, no, it definitely was not. Uh, where it's like, well, we don't have anything to do with the Old Testament, right? We, we're just New Testament believers. But it's all the Bible. It's all God's word, and all of it is pointing to Jesus. So there's that one error, I think, of just ignoring or denying and neglecting the Old Testament. But there's the other side, which is, I think, probably even more common among Christians, which is to treat the Old Testament as it's just kind of moralism. Okay? So what we have in the Old Testament are just stories about how you should be a better person. Right? Who are the Goliaths in your life that you need to conquer, and how can you do that? It's just kind of like moral exhortation. Now, is there a place for that? Sure. But it's not the top point of it. When we read the Bible, we are always and ever reading it through a Jesus-shaped, a cruciform lens. 
All the scriptures are pointing to Christ. So when we hear, again, for instance, the story of David and Goliath, we don't read that first and foremost as a, a story about how you and I can conquer Goliath, but how Christ, the son of David, is the one who has come and has conquered our greater foe, Satan, on our behalf and in our place. And now in him, we still aren't able to go toe-to-toe. It's the, the line in A Mighty Fortress, right? On earth is not his equal. That line's actually talking about the devil. Like in ourselves, we can't go toe-to-toe with the devil. Like I don't care if you've got your five smooth stones and you're like, I'm going to be able to take them on. No, you need Jesus. He is the one who has conquered on your behalf and gives you that victory. That's how we're reading the Old Testament, including how we're reading Genesis. So we're reading it and understanding it in its original context to the best of our ability, but we're also, and even more so, always looking to how does this point us to Jesus? Make sense? All right, questions or, or thoughts on that so far? I mean, for those of you who participated in our Leviticus study, you saw this, that was kind of, we were doing that to the max. Because if ever there was a book in the Old Testament that seems like it's not relevant anymore, it's Leviticus. But when you're reading the whole of the Bible through that filter, through that lens of Christ, well, then Leviticus just poof, comes alive. All right, well, I want to take just a few minutes and um, give you some of the background to Genesis. And again, if you've got specific questions about this part, we're happy to take those as we go. Briefly, just on the authorship. Okay. Now, this is the tricky thing. It, nowhere in the first five books of the Bible, including Genesis, says that Moses is the author. It actually doesn't say that in any particular verse. Moses is the author of these books. But it is the unanimous testimony of both ancient Jews and Christians that Moses is the author of not only Genesis, but also Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We'll say, well, why is that? If it never makes that explicit, never makes it clear, we can't point to chapter and verse, then why would that be? Well, certainly there's oral tradition, those things that, that predate perhaps even the written word. But there are some things within the scriptures themselves that do point to that also and that undergird that. I gave you just a few examples here. So in Deuteronomy 31, this is at the very end of the, we call the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Um, God says to Moses, now therefore write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. I mentioned that just as an example of like God telling Moses, here's what I want you to write. Of course, you could also mention the Ten Commandments. You know, God's like, I want you to uh, bring this down. God himself wrote it with his finger on the tablets. I'm going to have you take it down. There's other examples like that. Nehemiah, in other places later in the Old Testament, like, such as Nehemiah 13, refers back to those books, those first five books, as the books of Moses. So Nehemiah 13 says, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Second Chronicles 25, Ezra 6 has something similar. So already within the Old Testament, there's this recognition that these are the books of Moses. Um, that being said, there are some clear places where Moses was not the author. For instance, after Moses died, <laughs> Moses' death is recounted at the very end of Deuteronomy. There's the last couple of chapters. And so presumably somebody else wrote those chapters of, of Deuteronomy, Joshua or another. And that's a, a conservative position still to hold on the scriptures. Another one that kind of makes me laugh a little bit is in Numbers chapter 12, where it says, um, well, let me just turn to that real quick. Because in, in Numbers 12, it's another one of these verses where it's like, well, did Moses write that? Is that possible? <clears throat> it says, now the man Moses was very humble, more than all people who are on the face of the earth. Say, <laughs> so, okay, well, 
if Moses did write that, <laughs> so there, there's, prob- there's places along the way where there's probably other um, writers as well. And that's fair enough. There's nothing threatened, threatened by it. Um, but then also going into the New Testament, Jesus himself believes that these first five books were written by Moses. To give just one example from John 5, don't think that I will accuse you to the Father, Jesus says. There's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Okay. So, Jesus says Moses wrote it. It's good enough for me. Okay. Um, there's a lot of critical uh, views on the authorship of the first five books, including Genesis, over the last couple hundred years. I'd just as soon not get into all of that. If you're interested in it, I can give you, um, you know, a brief rundown of that later and point you to some things about that. But interestingly, over the last couple of decades, even those who have held more critical views of the authorship of Genesis and the first five books and said that it wasn't Moses, it was a collection of guys. Even then, those theories have largely fallen out of favor. Most of those people haven't returned to a a mosaic authorship, but they're recognizing that their critical views are are mostly bunk, too. So there's that. All right, yeah, go ahead, Ian. What's at stake if Moses didn't write it? Yeah, good question. What's at stake? I think... Similar, maybe there's a parallel analogy with the Gospels, where because there's critical authors that say, no, Matthew or Mark or Luke didn't write the Gospels. Say, well, what difference does it make? What's at stake? I would say what's at stake is that um, authority that comes from that close personal connection to the sources of authority, or in the case of Moses, to God himself. And so recognizing that Mosaic authorship brings that further validity to the things that are recounted and testified in it. Even as, you know, the Matthean, Matthew's authorship of his gospel brings greater credibility and credence to what he recounts because he was one of the disciples and he was going along with the Lord. Now, at the end of the day, if Moses didn't write it, as our faith, you know, just crumble, by no means. But we have good reason to believe that, that it was. So, yeah. Oral traditions, like, you know, Genesis is all oral tradition. Yeah, I mean, so it was, he's certainly not an eyewitness of Moses. Correct. How, yeah, how did Moses write the first? Or you know, was he doing play by play as God created? I mean, so there's a lot of oral tradition that was handed down there too. Yeah. Yeah, David. I feel this is underlying everything you're saying. I'm sure, but just the doctrine of inspiration too. Yeah. You know, when when that was uh, Paul wrote that, probably mostly referring to the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. Being said, it is God's word. It's God breathed. Yep, Period. that's right. Period. That's right. Um, all right. Secondly, just a couple things of historical background. I'm not going to get into this, but there are some interesting touch points. One is the Enuma Elish, the Babylonian creation myths and myth, and that's interesting mostly for the foil that it provides, the contrast that is provided with the Genesis account, where within the Enuma Elish, that Babylonian creation account, creation comes out of violence and also some you know, sexuality and weird stuff. Uh, within Genesis, you see it instead, as I said with the kids this morning, creation comes out of the overflow of God's loving heart. It's not from violence. It's not a, a second-class thing like we said with the heresy of Gnosticism. It's part of God's gift, okay? And that's really significant. The other one, Gilgamesh epic that's often pointed to, I find just fascinating. Um, critical scholars will look at that. There's a lot of overlap between the story of, of Noah and the ark and the flood and the, the Gilgamesh epic. And people will say, oh, that just shows that Noah's Ark is a myth. 
or it shows there really was a worldwide flood that others also experienced and passed down stories about. To me, that's a much more compelling and sensical explanation. So, but there's also contrast with that story too. Briefly, the structure of Genesis as a whole. There's a couple different ways to look at kind of the structure or the outline. One of them that seems to be really clear within um, the, the book itself is what are called the Toledot formulas. Okay, it's a Hebrew word, Toledot, Toledot, um, which is sometimes translated as these are the generations of. I like just straightforwardly, this is the family story of. And I gave you the references. It has it for first in chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, it, you have this is the, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. This is the family story of the heavens and the earth. Okay? That's the first Toledot. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, which uh, the reading from yesterday, this is the book of the generations. This is the Toledot of Adam. So you kind of have Adam's story, his generations. Same thing in chapter 6, chapter 10, 11, and on and on it goes. So that from this, if you look at it structured this way, you kind of have a prologue of that big picture creation account in chapter 1, the very beginning of chapter 2, and then 10 episodes throughout of these different family stories and lineages. The other way to kind of structure, just look at the big picture, is that there's kind of primeval history and patriarchal history. Primeval history being 1-1 up through the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, and then picking up in chapter 12 through the end of the book, okay, and that being the patriarchs, the fathers of Israel, whereas before that, the primeval history before, in times that we're not even totally able to, to date. One thing that I read this week that I like, though, is to look at it that way. is like there's two creation accounts. There's the creation account of chapter 1, the creation of the heavens and the earth, and then chapter 12, the creation of God's chosen people as he calls Abraham and sends him out. So in that sense, those, they kind of parallel each other. Last thing I want to give you in this kind of overview background is just what's the message of Genesis and how this fits with the rest of the Bible. Of course, Genesis is the book of foundations, the book of beginnings. But if you think of the story of the Bible as a whole, as kind of a four-act play, you've got creation, fall, redemption, and then recreation. Well, you've got two of those acts already just in the first three chapters, creation and fall. Then you have the launch of redemption, which is going to go basically from Genesis 4 to the rest of the Bible, God in search of man. And then at the very end, in Revelation, we get the glimpse of the new creation, as well as places scattered along the way, prophecies and promises of that. Some uh, theologians also include as a, an additional act or scene, if you will, between redemption and new creation, the, the scene of the church, where we are now. But to think of it that way, um, here we have, just in these first few chapters, we have the creation of the world, we have how things go wrong, and then we have God's promise already that he's going to fix it, that he's going to reverse this curse. And this takes me to where I want to spend a little bit of time here before we get to your questions, which is to go, go to chapter 3, verse 15. So pick up with verse 14. So this is right after Adam and Eve take the fruit, deceived by the serpent, and now God is going to do a couple of things. First of all, he's going to curse the serpent, which it's not made explicit here in Genesis that it's Satan, but later in the scriptures we're, we're told retroactively, and it's pretty apparent from reading it too through that, that hindsight. Um, we have God's curse 
on the serpent, on Satan. But then with that, and actually spoken to the serpent in the hearing of Adam and Eve, is a promise. So let me pick up verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Then this, in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Verse 15 here. Now, that, you might read that and just blow right past it. But from ancient times, this has been known as the Proto-Euangelion. The Proto-Euangelion, which is, you can impress all of your friends or co-workers with this this week, okay? Proto-Euangelion, Proto-first, and then Euangelion, uh, like evangel, evangelical, gospel, okay? The first gospel. The promise made already here in chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis. And what's the content of that promise? God says he's going to put this enmity between Satan and between his people. But more importantly, between your offspring and her offspring. Now, significantly, a couple of things here. One, the, the, the Hebrew word there is zerah, and it's like seed. And it's the only place in the Bible that it's used with a, a female. And why would that be? Why would this be the only place that you've got, speaking of the female seed? Birth. Well, birth. But straightforward. Well, it's pointing to the virgin birth already. But for the simple fact that the seed usually belongs to the man, right? And so here we're talking about this seed of belonging to the woman. It's the only place that this is, happens in the Old Testament. And yes, Luther picks up on this and says this is already alluding to and pointing forward to the virgin birth. But also, and Paul picks up on this in Galatians chapter 3, Zerah there, it's a singular, and her offspring, your seed. So it's one. And then as it continues, it becomes clear. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So we're talking about one guy. Okay, Eve, you're going to give birth to this son, this one offspring. Again, saying this to the Satan, which I just love this, saying it to the serpent. It's all, I mean, God's just dunking on his head right from the beginning. Like, you think that you've won? Bro, I'm here to tell you, you are not going to win. You're not going to win. But even so, there is a, a subtle kind of allusion and pointer toward uh, to the cross. Because he shall bruise your head. Some translations say he shall crush your head. But it is the same verb used in both places. And you shall bruise his heel. You're going to bite him. You're going to bruise him. Okay, Jesus isn't going to come through this just from victory unto victory. He himself is going to die and suffer and appear to be crushed. But in his own being crushed, he's crushing that ancient serpent. Marvelous hymn that we have in our hymnal called the Tree of Life. And there's a, a line in there that he, will, he comes to crush the ancient serpent's head. I, what, a number of years ago for Easter, we had made, and how did we make it? Was that a paper mache? We made like a, instead of a, um, what do you call the thing? Pinata. A pinata. Made like a pinata of, of the serpent. And on Easter, we brought it down with the kids. Do you remember this, Samuel? Okay, when Sam was probably like four or five. And we all were crushing the serpent's head. It was awesome. <laughs> so, but that's, that's the promise that's made here. Now, here's the question that I, I want to ask. Did Adam and Eve, Hearing this proto-euangelion, this promise, did they have any grasp of what was going on here? Did they understand this at all? And then, did they believe it? Now, 
the first kind of knee-jerk reaction to it, I think, is there's no way. I mean, how could they possibly? But I want to draw your attention to two bits of, of evidence here from the scripture that says not only did they believe it, not only did they understand it, but they believed it, and in a really profound way, even if they didn't have the full picture. Two things. The first one is this. So God speaks this, this word of, of curse. He doesn't say to Adam and Eve specifically that you're cursed. Rather, the curse, God curses the ground. They're going to labor under this curse. Satan is cursed. Um, but he also has this promise embedded in there, proto-euangelion, of this coming seed. Notice in verse 20 now, having just heard this, what does Adam do? What does he say? It says, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So the name Eve is Chava. It comes from the, the Hebrew word Chai, meaning to live. Okay, like Lachayim, right? To life. Uh, before, she was just Ishto. She was, she was the woman. Okay? He, he's Ish, and she was Isha, because she came out of man. But now he's, he's like, I need to change your name. You're the mother of all life, of all the living. Well, why would he do that? Because he has just heard this promise that through Eve, God is going to restore life. He's going to undo that, that curse and what has happened as a result of what Satan has brought into the world and, and their fall. And so that, to me, is already pointing to the fact that Adam, perhaps not totally clearly with, with perfect understanding, but truly, he hears that promise and he's like, all right, we're changing your name because from you is the one who's going to restore life to me. But if you're not persuaded by that one, I got to give you another one. And I, I owe this insight to um, Chad Bird. And Chad Bird has a, a wonderful podcast called 40 Minutes in the Old Testament. And so if you're interested in like deeper dives during the week as you're reading these chapters, I encourage you to check out 40 Minutes in the Old Testament, um, Chad Bird, part of 1517. And uh, Sam and I were listening to some of this. He started this in 2015 with the book of Genesis. And they just do a chapter a week. And so now they're up to Job. <laughs> and sometimes they don't even get through a whole chapter uh, a week. But Chad brought this out, and this kind of blew my mind. And maybe some of you will have heard this before, but if not, go to chapter 4 now. So it goes right to, remember, the chapter, our chapter and verse things are, are rather arbitrary. This is from the Middle Ages. So the story is running right in from chapter 3 to chapter 4. He drove out the man at the, and at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife. All right, He knew her right in the Old Testament sense. Okay, the Old King James has had relations with his wife. You get the idea. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, does anybody have a different translation in for verse 1, we, I, I'll got our ESV. Does anybody have something else? King James is, and Adam knew Eve as his wife, and she conceived before Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Okay. I've gotten a man from the Lord. I've gotten a man with the, with the help of the Lord. And so, a couple of things. First of all, so she calls him Cain because she's gotten. So your name's gotten, which is like, wow, that's a, a great name. Thank you. Thank you, Eve. But there's much more going on here, friends. So what uh, Chad Bird brought out, and it's, it's crystal clear in the Hebrew, is what Eve says literally. She says, I have, 
First of all, she says, I've gotten a man. Okay, not a child. A man. Ish. Okay? And then it says, I've gotten a man. The Lord. Full stop. Almost all translations say, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord or from the Lord or something like that. But what it literally says in the Hebrew is, I've gotten a man, the Lord. And it's not even just the generic word Adonai. For Lord, it's Yahweh. It's, that, it's God's sacred name. I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord, Yahweh. There's a particular particle in Hebrew. It's just this little word, eth, that when it's eth, it's a direct object. It's a very clear verbal marker that this is pointing to. Now, why is that significant? Because what that suggests is that Eve heard that promise that she is going to give birth to a seed who's going to be the, the promised one, the one who's going to crush the serpent's head. And she thinks, this is the guy, right? Here's the guy. I have given birth to a man, Yahweh. Think about this. It's as though she already has some grasp too that the child, the, the seed who's going to come is going to be God incarnate, that he is going to come among us that he's going to be the one. Now, Luther refers to this as a pious mistake of Eve, right? That he says, this is a, this is a pious mistake. She thinks, okay, this has got to be the one because he's made this promise, and now I've gotten a child, and so this, is, this has got to be the guy. You can understand where she would be coming from with that. But to me, this is just like, whoa, this is fantastic. And it, it suggests, again, that she heard and understood and believed that promise already, even if she didn't totally grasp it. Now, a couple other things about this. That uh, the Hebrew verb kana, from which Cain comes from, gotten, um, but, or other times it's just buy or paid for. And this too, because Eve knows, she has heard that she is going to give birth and it's going through pain, you are going to be bringing forth a child, right? And you just imagine Eve giving birth to the first child and how painful that was, right? No painkillers, no nothing. It's all natural. And as she is thinking with that word resounding in her ears, thinking, I've, I've, I've paid for this one, right? I've paid for this one. But also, and even more so, pointing forward to the one who's going to be, who buys us back, the Redeemer, that greater Cain, our Lord Jesus, who's going to redeem us, buy us, purchase us. That's who her seed ultimately is going to be. Now, a couple other things that are a little bit more of conjecture, but I think, are, or you might say circumstantial evidence from this, but I think is interesting. As we were talking about it with the kids the other day, they asked, okay, so what about Abel? What does his name mean? Now, notice this. <laughs> It's just kind of a, a letdown. So she has this first child, Cain. I have gotten a man, the Lord. This is our guy. Then verse 2. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Oh, okay. No, no big deal. No nothing. No explanation or anything. He's just the other guy. Well, <laughs> it goes even further. Because that name, Abel, is the Hebrew word hevel. And it's most well known from the book of Ecclesiastes where it says throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, hevel of hevel, says the Lord, vanity of vanities. This is the same word that's used in Ecclesiastes and throughout to describe vanity or breath or nothingness. Okay. 
So here you've got the firstborn, Cain. He's our guy. Here's the Lord incarnate. And then we've got a second one, and who is he? He's just, a, he's breath. He's nothingness. Don't worry about that guy. Interesting naming. I can only imagine sort of sibling rivalry that might spring up in, in the course of that. And how Cain himself, now this is where the conjecture really comes in. Would Adam and Eve treat Cain differently, do you think? If they believed that he was, he was the one, he's the chosen one, he's the promised one. Do you think they'd treat him differently? I'd venture to say they probably would. Again, that's total conjecture. It doesn't tell us that. But I think that's reasonable to think that, that they might do so. To the point that now as the story continues, it just goes straight on now, you know, fast forward a number of years. And here's Abel, you know, here's nothing number two. And here's Cain. Oh, he thinks he's the BMOC, right? He's the big man on campus. He's literally God's gift to the world, right? He's the chosen one. So let's see what happens. Uh, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. He got a, a shepherd and a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now let's just stop right there and be clear that the reason why God has regard for Cain and his, or for Abel and his offering and not for Cain has nothing to do about the quality of their respective offerings. It's not because, oh, Abel brought you know, a sacrifice from his flock, whereas Cain brought you know, from, just from his fields, and that's not as big of a deal. Just fast forward to the book of Leviticus. God commands both of these things to be given as sacrifices. They're both equally valid sacrifices. So why is it then that God doesn't regard Cain's offering, but he does regard Abel's. Well, we went through Hebrews last year, and maybe you're remembering in the book of Hebrews, it talks about this. Where Go, to, go ahead and turn to, to Hebrews chapter 11. Okay, so. All right. It's just... One verse, passing mention, Hebrews 11 is that great kind of called the hall of faith. You know, all these Old Testament saints. And it mentions Abel here in Hebrews 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So why is Abel's offering acceptable to God? And why does God regard that and not regard Cain's offering? Because Abel makes his offering by faith. He comes to God in faith. Whereas Cain, the inference there and the implication is that he doesn't come by faith, but instead comes with an attitude that is prideful, that's raised up. Here, all right, I'm giving you what you need, but do I need to do this? No, I don't. He doesn't come with an attitude of faith, of receptivity, but instead one of pridefulness. Abel, recognizing he's got nothing. It's right there in his name. He's nothingness. He's a breath. What do I have? If he is going to be acceptable to God, he knows that it's going to be totally from God's favor and kindness. Or to quote another hymn, we might say, nothing in my hands I bring. Hevel, Abel in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. That's the fundamental posture and attitude of faith. And that's what, that's what Abel comes with. Now, 
Cain, incensed by all of this, wait a second, here I am, I, th I thought I was the chosen one, how could this possibly be? How dare you accept this uh, offering and not mine? He goes on and he, he kills his brother. Right? Am I my brother's keeper? He kills him. And from there, we can just imagine what that does to Adam and Eve and how they're wrecked after that. Like, wait a second, not only is he not Messiah, he's a murderer of his own brother. I mean, it's just so much about it that is absolutely devastating. So I just wanted to, to bring that out to you because that was one thing from our reading this week in, in these first few chapters of Genesis that especially just grabbed my attention. But I don't know, is that an interpretation that any of you have heard before? You know, I've gotten a child, the Lord. Any of you heard that before? I had, David, you've, you've heard that. I, the pastor guy, of course. He's probably preached on it before. But uh, I was just floored by that. Yeah, Pam. So, and maybe this is part of what you said before. I have a note, a note at the bottom of my Bible that says, Cain sounds like the Hebrew word for God. Yes, yeah, that right? that's right. Okay. And that's it. Kana, yeah, Kana. And it's uh, not a super common verb. Well, I mean, in Hebrew or anything. But I think it shows up maybe 30 times or something like that. Um, but uh, yeah, gotten, acquired, paid for, bought is kind of the, that progression, the understanding of that verb. So when you look at it from that, that bigger lens, it's a little bit more interesting of a name, not just, oh, our guy gotten over here. All right, so now I want to open it up to questions from anywhere in these first five chapters. What has been standing out to you? What do you want to know about? And yeah, we'll start with Tara. Oh, okay. That's, good. That's a good question. Br grab my Hebrew there. Did, what did you say, Hans? It means number three. Number three, yeah. Numero trace. I don't know off the, off the top of my head. Um, it sounds like the Hebrew word for just like put or placed, but I don't know. David, do you happen to know? I know. Okay. Mine says Seth sounds like the Hebrew for he appointed. He appointed. Okay. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, because that becomes significant too. Oh, one other thing along these lines, if that, that kind of pious mistake, go to chapter 5 too. We talk about names here. So um, when we get to Noah, uh, verse 28, <clears throat> when Lamech had lived, chapter 5, verse 28, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, Noah, which means rest. Okay, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us rest from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So maybe Lamech is also thinking about this. But you can only imagine, with each subsequent child, with each subsequent you know, son, they're wondering, maybe this is him, maybe this is him, maybe this is the guy, is this the guy, is it? Fast forward thousands of years, we get to the you know, time of Jesus. Is this the guy? Maybe this is the one? But then with John the Baptist, like, whoa, this really does look interesting. You can see that sense of expectation start to rise up. Good. All right, next question. David. In verse 14, he talks about being a fugitive. Yeah. And a vagabond on the earth. He's a one-armed man. fearful that someone is going to kill him. Yeah. Who's going to kill him? Right. Yep. Who's going to kill him? Well, and this is just a more general question. People ask, like, what, are there other people here? Like, what, what's going on here? Who are they marrying? And here, my answer would be this. And this is true. Um, well, not just in Genesis, but throughout the Bible. What we have most of the time in these stories is we have a spotlight where God shines a spotlight on what we need to know. 
Okay, so take for instance <clears throat> the subsequent generations that come and the genealogy that we have in, in chapter 5. It's an incomplete genealogy. This is also true in Matthew chapter 1. It's a genealogy that's there. It doesn't tell us every single generation. There are some that's left out. Part of it we can tell from the symbolism. So it's 10, 10, 10, uh, or 14, 14 in Matthew chapter 1. And so God tells us what we need to know. Uh, I put it this way. We're on a need-to-know basis, and there's some things that we're like, we don't, we don't need to know. So that's, I don't know if that sounds like just a, an evasion, but it's like, yeah, uh, there's other people that are coming along as well. Things get compressed. The story gets condensed. Um, so there you go. There, but evidently there's others out there. Or he's just concerned about, you know, my younger brother, like somebody else, you know, these guys who are coming, they're going to come after me too. Because Seth would have been, where? Seth have already come. Would we have had subsequent brothers by that time? Um, in any case, he knows he's got a, uh, a bullseye on his back at that point. All right, other questions from anywhere in these first few chapters? Yeah, Hans. Uh, why did Cain offer a sacrifice? Uh, Adam and Eve didn't. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's like, this is like out of the blue. I'm, right. I'm just going to, and then his brother says, oh, look, he's doing that. Sounds like something fun to do. Yeah, right. Uh, okay, so Hans' question is, why, why is... Cain and Abel offer a sacrifice. Doesn't say anything about you know commands about offering sacrifices. My first thought is this: that the first sacrifice has been made already, and we talked about this in Advent when we looked at uh, Genesis three in one of our Advent midweek services. Because what's that first sacrifice? It's the animal that has to die for God to clothe Adam and Eve. There's a sense that now, post fall, if you will. Blood has to be shed, or at least some kind of sacrifice has to be offered. And so perhaps just flowing out of that, it's just the natural sense. And I think it's the case, and world history kind of bears this out, that now we have this sense in our hearts that there needs, there needs, a sacrifice needs to be rendered for us to be acceptable to God. You see this in world religions. Those that don't have that, the light of the gospel, they don't have the understanding of the good news, but it's natural, it's written on the hearts of men that we, there's bad news, right? I mean, you see this, what, or whether you're talking about the, the tribes of Central America and the Mayas and the Incas and offering up virgins to the volcanoes. Like, why are they doing that? Like, who told them to do that? There's that deep-seated sense that a sacrifice has to be offered to, to affect, to bring about some reconciliation. Now, modern people, we've become a lot more nuanced and subtle about this. We're not sacrificing virgins. Instead, we just you know, work 80 hours a week. We have our smartphone on all the time and make sure that you know, we're always on or we're going to be perfect or we sacrifice more than others when it comes to our fandom. Like We're going to give all that we got because other people, they're not real fans. I'm a real... People will show their sacrifices for their gods do whatever they got to do, right? Who knows what Packer fans are doing today, Hans, in order to try to bring about a victory. Um, yeah. Well, I would say watch out for your dogs if they're out loose, you know. Just... <laughs> but that's a good question. Yeah, Ann, go ahead. Uh, chapter 2, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. Yeah. There he put the man whom he had formed. One of my questions about that verse is um, what does that mean, in the east? Yeah. And did the hearers of this the original hearers know where Eden was to begin with. In, the, in Eden, 
In the East. Good. So this is one thing that, that jumped out at me too that I guess I hadn't really picked up on before. That it's as though we think of the Garden of Eden, that as though Eden and the Garden are just you know synonymous. But it's a, Eden is a larger region or area. He planted a garden in Eden. Now why does he say in the East? Yeah, presumably for later readers and hearers of this, they do know where it's at. I mean, and we're given some geographical you know markers. Uh, when I, I talk about this with the confirmation kids, it's uh, effectively in Iraq, right? Modern-day Iraq, which, boom, you think about that, like, wow. That tells you about everything you need to know about what the fall has affected. We've gone from Eden to Baghdad. Like, woof, that's tough. I mean, it's in that general vicinity. So, yeah, so two things. That one, Eden was a larger region, that there was a sense of where it was, um, and that the garden is planted in there, and that it would have been east of where they were at, where they're hearing it from. Yeah. And then I have one more, and this was from chapter 3, verse 22. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't finish that right. sentence. And then, the, therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden. So seems like there are different options God would have in keeping man from reaching the tree. One would be to destroy the tree. Another would be to destroy man. Right. But instead he separates them. Right. He doesn't do any of the, he doesn't destroy. Right. He separates. He separates. And I, I never had caught that before, but like, you know, but, you know, so he doesn't do what I don't want him to do. And he doesn't, so you're thinking like, oh, what could he do? Sure. What is he going to do to keep this from happening? Well, and, and also along with that, I think it's, it's natural to read that as punishment that he's driving him out. That, you know, oh, he's not able to get a hold of the tree of life. But what that suggests is that if he were to eat of the tree of life, now he's going to live forever in this state of being alienated from God. In this fallen state. And God doesn't want that. That now death comes as a mercy because, as it says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, flesh and blood cannot inherit eternal life. Just to say, fall in flesh and blood, as it is now, post-fall. There has to be this death in order that there can be a resurrection. So for him separating from the tree of life, it's, it's a mercy, because now you're going to die, but then ultimately I'm going to raise you back to life. Yeah. And as far as why he doesn't need to destroy the tree of life, I mean, it shows up again in Revelation. God's like, I still have, I've got use for it still, Right? It's just like your grandma. He's like, I'm going to put this in the attic. We're going to use this someday, right? Just save it. Is this Jesus also? Well, and the tree of life, I mean, that's the, the gist of that hymn too, which picks up on an ancient, that when we talk about the tree of life, that the tree of the cross is that, that tree of life. And there's probably, I don't know for sure, but I would guess there's some strain of interpretation that says the cross itself was made with wood from, from the tree of life. There's no biblical evidence for that, but that's the kind of thing that the church fathers would say, for sure. We've got just a couple more minutes. For, yeah, go ahead, Jim. I've always been curious about the level of intelligence uh, of the people that just started. Yeah, right. And how they had the abilities uh, to reason and to communicate and all those things. And so during your theological studying, uh, did, did you ever hear any um, dis- discussion or rationale for Moses being raised in the courts of Pharaoh and the, 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 the state of Egypt at that time was much more advanced than most cultures. Sure. And there's speculation of why they were so advanced. Yeah. And how much 
of that was carried over into Moses's new life mm-hmm. and it's being raised in the courts of Pharaoh. Right. So your your question is to well two things. One, to what extent do they are they a, a pretty sophisticated culture already and how does Egypt play into that as well? Well, I think that's an interesting thought with Moses, for sure. I mean, you have the Greeks and the Egyptians, although there's also a strain of interpretation that says, well, the way that they started, that the Egyptians know this, is with Moses being there and that he informed them about creation. He, that Moses kind of helped the Egyptians more than the Egyptians helped him. He helped to accelerate the, their pace of, of learning and understanding. That's, okay, okay. Be, that, be that as it may. But, I mean... This is one of those things that is, runs contrary to an evolutionary sort of thing, where it's like, okay, we've got um, uh, kind of Neanderthal-type people who are gradually getting smarter and so forth, rather than people who from the get-go are made in the image and likeness of God, right? And are, are, do people continue to learn and grow and mature in wisdom and stature? Sure, but they're able to communicate. The, the ability to communicate, even, even still today, people don't understand communication. How does that happen? People like Noam Chomsky makes up something called like the language acquisition device. As though we all have this thing over here, your LAD, you just got to turn on your language acquisition device. Like, really? Then how come gorillas that are taught signs for decades, at the end of the day, know like five words, right? With all due respect to, you know, uh, the gorillas out there. But <laughs> whereas humans are just, we naturally have this capacity. One more quick story. I've shared this from before, but consciousness we talk about consciousness. Where does that come from? And I had a philosophy class at MSU, Philosophy 101. And one of these guys, it's often the case teaching these classes, who's just, you know, he's, he's just got it out against believers and Christians in particular. And he's going on some screed about how there's no God and da, 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 da. And I said, you know, very innocently, I wasn't trying to do any kind of gotchas, but at one point I raised my hand. He kind of knew where I was coming from. I said, you know, Dr. Benjamin, with all due respect, so what do philosophers and people of your persuasion, where do you say that consciousness comes from, okay? Because my understanding is science has no real accounting uh, from where consciousness, how that is arose. And he's like, well, the state of the question right now is we believe that it came about through magic. (laughs) (laughs) And like, he deadpanned it and he was totally serious. Which to me was like, Okay, good. So you don't, have, you don't have an answer. Just wanted to make, just wanted to make that clear. Uh, there's so much about human life that is just a wonder and a mystery and a miracle that it, it can't just be explained as being spontaneously generated. So, um, all right, guys. We need way more time. Here's what I want you to do this coming week. If, if you're following along reading, write your questions as they go. And what will be really helpful, of course, if you just come with them, that's fine too. But Email me, send questions ahead of time. That would, be, that would be great too. We'll spend a little bit less time at the beginning with that teaching. I'll try to open up more time for, for questions too. And if you've got some stuff lingering from this one, I mean, we didn't even talk about creation. There's so much more there. Um, I'd be happy to continue that next week as well. But this is great. I'm excited. Keep at it in Genesis, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.